Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal, and my guest today is Chris Newell, recently appointed director of the Abe Museum, Bar Harbor. Chris was born in Indian Township, Maine, a proud citizen of the Passamaquoddy tribe. He attended Dartmouth College and the University of Connecticut. He was education supervisor for the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center, where his team led the group experience for over 70,000 guests. And as a student of native music, is a member of the Mystic River Singers, an award-winning intertribal powwow drum group. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, good to see you. So let's begin at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your 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 birth, your upbringing, how you found your way uh, along this sort of wonderfully tortured path? Yeah, you know, it, it, it is an interesting story. Um, you know, I, I find myself as the executive director of uh, Maine's only Smithsonian affiliate, yet uh, I never intended, you know, as a young person to, to be in the museum field. I kind of backed into it. So I, I was born and raised in Madoknagok, which is uh, Indian Township, Maine, the reservation, uh, the inland reservation for our uh, two communities on the U.S. side. Uh, Zibayag, Pleasant Point is where my father was raised. And I have blood family on, on in both communities. And uh, growing up uh, in Indian Township, you know, as uh, Passamaquoddy peoples, you know, we, we have retained, you know, spoken language. Uh, you know, a lot of the culture still uh, remains even through centuries of paternal uh, relationship with the state of Maine. And luckily in the 70s, uh, we did gain federal recognition and we were able to start to rebuild our community. And uh, I grew up in that era. Uh, I was part of the first generation of Passamaquoddies to grow up with electricity and running water in our homes. My father's generation didn't grow up with those. And so uh, as a result, I got to uh, experience television, things like that, uh, that generations before, you know, only saw on a kind of tertiary uh, basis. And, uh, you know, I really got kind of a, a wide worldview. You know, I, I loved my homeland. I love my home community. I love all the people there. I still do to this day. And that, that is my home. You know, even though I've, I've lived in Connecticut and I live in Ellsworth, uh, Indian Township will always be my home. But I also saw things on television that, you know, made me want to see the world. Or on, on the reservation, we didn't have things like uh, people picking up your trash or, or the mail being delivered to your house. And uh, my grandmother loved a few soap operas. And I can remember watching those shows and uh, wondering what life was like to live in a place like that. Rural Mainers, I'm sure, can, uh, it does, it's not just Passamaquoddies that live this way. I'm sure rural Mainers can definitely uh, sympathize with, with that idea. So I, I definitely had a, a want uh, deep inside me as a very young person to get out and see the world. So I uh, made my way through school, did rather well, uh, went to Calus High School, played sports, and uh, really was focused on math and science. The humanities was really not on my radar. However, I had grown up with my father working in the field of education. He has a master's degree from Harvard University, graduated in 1971, and one of the first Native people to graduate with a master's from that program. He's one of the, what they call the original 11 from uh, the birth of the American Indian program at Harvard University back in 1970. And so I did grow up watching him do his work, speaking to universities, speaking to museums and, and institutions, and talking about how to properly uh, teach about Passamaquoddy culture and music language. Uh, he worked to preserve our language for over 50 years and was also a, a big element in keeping our music alive as well. So I did grow up with that example, but I didn't quite reflect myself as doing that for some reason. Um, I saw myself going out and getting an engineering degree, you know, and so uh, I did a summer program at Philip Sandover. I was accepted into uh, math and science for minority students, the three-year uh, program, very intensive on uh, math science programs. I was doing things like fractals and chaos theory back in high school, you know, so I was really, really engaged with uh, the world of math, science, physics. I got to Dartmouth College graduated high school and made my way into Dartmouth College. Uh, and when I got to Dartmouth, I realized uh, Dartmouth, of course, had an old mascot, the Dartmouth Indian mascot that was there uh, up until the 1970s. And it was never the official mascot of the school. Uh, and it's kind of tied to the myth of how Dartmouth was founded. They, they did get rid of it in the 70s, but it was still very present on the campus back in the 90s when I was there. And that was really my first time running into what uh, native sports mascot culture was like 
at a sports match. Uh, you know, uh, uh, in high school, we, we played against one school that had a native mascot, which was the Fort Kent Warriors, but uh, way up in northern Maine at the very tip of the state. It's not exactly like they had somebody running around on the court dressed in some sort of native attire or something like that, you know, and I, I didn't have, really have an issue back then because it didn't directly affect me. But when I got to Dartmouth, I went to my first football game and I saw, you know, my peers from uh, my graduating class and, and, and the older students engaging in, in the mascot, the native mascot culture and, uh, you know, doing things like uh, the old Wahoo Wah chant and uh, patting their lips, uh, like uh, imitating the sound of a Lulu that uh, a lot of uh, women from Plains tribes do. And I was really kind of taken aback, you know, I was like, here I am, I made it my way to the Ivy Leagues. And uh, yet, looking around the student body here and all of my peers, this is what they understand about Native cultures. This is what they've been exposed to. And there was, uh, it, it was a realization for me at how relatively ignorant the American public was about uh, histories of Native peoples on, uh, in the United States. And uh, that, that really started, you know, um, a movement uh, with me towards education. Go back just a minute to your grandmother and your father. Uh, those are usually formative influences. Mm -hmm. Other sometimes the father is a positive influence, sometimes not. Uh, you seem to have been fortunate to have both of those as strong, nurturing, context-building leaders in in the in the shaping of your of your values. Absolutely, no. My father and uh, my grandmother Adelaide, uh, my uh, my father's mother. Uh, on, uh, on my father's side, she came to live with us when I was very young. She had arthritis and, you know, she needed a little bit of assistance to get around. And they both spoke Passamaquoddy uh, fluently um, in, in the house all day, every day. Uh, my grandmother spoke to me in Passamaquoddy first, and then she would translate to English. And uh, because of her arthritis, she couldn't make her way around. And all of her friends, her age, you know, would come to visit regularly. In fact, she had a, a small group, a cohort of friends that would come on the weekend and they would play uh, card games, Okino and, and other things. And as a very young child, I was the host. So, you know, all these elderly women uh, from the Passamaquoddy community and elderly women in our culture actually achieve the highest social stature. You know, we respect them the most. And, uh, you know, we see even, you know, the, the, the earth as a uh, as a maternal force. And so uh, because of that, you know, women actually have a lot of decision making power, even though um, men were typically chiefs. They were oftentimes making decisions at the behest of uh, the elder women in the community. And, um, you know, that's traditionally the way it's been done. So I was really brought into that. And these ladies, once again, all of them spoke Passamaquoddy. So I got to, you know, hear their stories of their childhood, being born around 1918, 1920, uh, what life was like for them back then, uh, and also the values of growing up to be a good Passamaquoddy person, uh, uh, you know, uh, of a human being in this world. And that was really formative for me in a lot of ways, uh, you know, because our language has a different worldview than the English language. And that's one of the things I often talk about in my museum work is just that, you know, when we're talking about Native cultures, one of the failures that we have is that we're, we're, we're talking about it in the English language, which has the worldview of the land of England. And our worldview is, is much, much different than that. And uh, if you don't have have a, a, I'm not a fluent speaker, but I uh, had enough of it that I was able to absorb the worldview and the understanding of community and how to take care of each other and how valuable that is for uh, survival of your people and your culture and just, you know, for, for raising good human beings myself and the next generations that come up and come past that. So that was definitely a big formation of who the person I became today uh, was those times uh, in those years. Well, part of what we're trying to do in these conversations is to invoke the spirit of Maine. And I want to go back to the beginning in the sense that there was this natural world here before any of us were, were present. And yet the first people came and they created a value set. How was that delivered or communicated to you? Were you aware of that as a, in your upbringing? Yeah, and that was the strange thing is that I was born and raised aware of uh, you know Passamaquoddy history. We, we were never removed necessarily by the federal government. A lot of our territory was diminished, of course, by the creation of the United States government and then the state of Maine. But well, we still live in the same traditional territory we've lived in for uh, for over ten thousand years. And as a result, you know, we we have place names of uh, that all predate the English 
English language arriving in the state of Maine, uh, and also the, the creation of the international border that splits our territory. Our home base is around Scudig, the what is known as the St. Croix River, which is now the border between the United States and Canada. And uh, because of uh, what happened in the American Revolution, uh, the Canadian side did not choose to recognize our, Cana our, our Canadian Passamaquoddy relatives until just relatively recently, in the past couple of years, even though they have existed there, as if Passamaquoddies didn't exist on both sides. You know, So I was born and raised with this idea that we have 10,000 plus years of history and Maine is only a construct that has happened in the last couple of hundred years. And uh, when I left the reservation, um, it was really surprising to me how uh, the time clock, you know, because I went to Calus High School, which is a, a, a non-native public high school in the city of Calus. And uh, that's where I ran into the typical public school education system was. Uh, and that was uh, typically starting the time clock with the arrival of European explorers. And it kind of jumped over all of the history of Wabanaki peoples on this landscape here, you know, and, and uh, the landscape, you know, the state of Maine is located inside a greater landscape known in Passamaquoddy as Chiguabanakig, which means the land of the dawn. And we are known collectively uh, in the English language as Wabanaki, which is a derivative of uh, um, several different terms in our language, which means we are dwellers of the land of the dawn. And it shows that, you know, we understood our ancestors several thousand years back understood our geographic location and the, uh, the understanding that the sun rose in our particular geographic location first. And it's part of our cosmology. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was something that I was born and raised with. But when I left the reservation, that's when I came to a realization that it was not being taught. And when I would teach it to my friends, uh, a lot of them would actually be kind of upset that they, they weren't taught it, you know, that this was being held back from them. Um, you know, there was no, I'm sure there was no ill intent behind the idea of starting, you know, the public school time clock uh, at that, but it did do a good amount of erasure of the Native history. And so as uh, my friends would learn about it, they would actually be kind of upset that they, they weren't uh, enlightened more about it. And which, you know, really drives what I work, what I do today is it's really not making a world just better for Passamaquoddy people or for Wabanaki people uh, here in the state of Maine. It's about creating a world where Wabanaki people have been present here for over 10,000 years so that all of our neighbors here in the state of Maine um, can learn from that history collectively and so that we can all do better going forward together because we're all here in the state of Maine now. It's really about what we do for our future generations and the, the, the handbook for sustainable living in the state of Maine is located within Wabanaki languages. You know, that's uh, they were formed on the land and uh, sustainable life ways were developed on the land and our language is literally part of that blueprint. And so we can learn from it. The state of Maine could learn from it uh, definitely uh, by expanding their knowledge of it. I suppose uh, the irony is not lost on the circle turning and that that value set uh, that was inherited in your upbringing left out of your education is coming back round again uh, in some way that it, it's a good thing but is it another appropriation? How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, appropriation has to do with permission, right? And and so, um, you know, you can uh, be taught something from uh, another culture and be given, you know, in a way, rights to, to use something. Uh, and that's happened throughout the world all the time, uh, you know, and, and if you're taught it in a respectful manner, if you pass on who taught it to you, those types of things, that is treating that knowledge with respect and is not taking it. Appropriation is about learning about something and then taking it and using it as if it was your own uh, without having permission. And so Native peoples, you know, Wabanaki peoples in the state of Maine, we do not want to be absent from the history that is being taught to the state of Mainers. And so, you know, the permission is absolutely there that, you know, the histories of Wabanaki people should be taught as part of the educational experience for all state of Mainers because of our presence here uh, historically, as well as our presence here today which is one of the main things that, that needs to be addressed in, in the public school system and, and why it's so important is because uh, when we do leave the reservation, we do see the level of erasure that happens. It does affect our self-esteem and a world that acknowledged the presence of Native people, uh, an America that acknowledged the presence of Native people prior to the existence of the United States would uh, would be an amazing thing to me. You know, you know, uh, people start with land acknowledgments these days, and that's that's kind of a first step towards this process 
Uh, the Abbey Museum is really at a, a tremendous crossroads in its history right now with the first Wabanaki executive director and all these things. So there is a, kind of a full circle coming around, and it's because it's being pushed by Wabanaki peoples ourselves for us to get our information out there. And so there is uh, really not an appropriation going on. Um, this is a handing over, a giving, uh, and almost a shouting uh, to say, please include us in uh, what is taught about the history of this land. I want to talk about that in great depth. But before that, I, I'd like to ask you one question. How do you engage with the, the, the landscape now yourself personally? Well, I mean, you know, I grew up with one mindset, and as I continue to, you know, immerse myself in, in uh, our language, I continue to change uh, that mindset. I, um, I grew up in a world where roads and every houses and all of that, and this, this landscape of uh, electrical uh, grid and all of that is, was just, you know, the world that I grew up in. But you know, as I learn more about our language, I understand that it's uh, really not... Uh, the duty of human beings to, as, as the English would put it, subdue and improve land, and now we use the word develop, that it's not the duty of people to do that. It's really, in our worldview, it's really uh, the land is already perfect and will provide everything you need. And as human beings, it's up to us to constantly improve within that construct that the land provides for us. And so that's my, my, uh, my biggest shift is as I've gotten out of the mode of thinking in the English language more and thinking in the Passamaquoddy language more, I see the landscape much more as not something that I can make profit off of, but is a life-giving force that if I, if I were to take part properly, I could utilize it to provide all of my needs, uh, which would be a much different existence that we all live in under today. So you've been at the director at, at the Abe Museum, what, about a year now? About a year, yep. Uh, and you started just about the time where COVID shut you down. Yes. You're not alone. Museums have suffered from this situation all over the world. But you've had time to think and to plan. And I'm interested in think that your arrival, COVID, and all the other circumstances that we now have just been discussing will change or shape the mission of the museum. Uh, it won't necessarily change the mission. You know, the, the, the mission is inspiring new learning about Wabanaki nations or Wabanaki peoples with every visit. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very much invested in, in keeping that mission going. But uh, the shape of it, you know, does change uh, because with my arrival, the voice of the museum is starting to change. And this is something that had begun prior to my arrival. Cinnamon uh, Catlin Legutko is my predecessor at the Abbey Museum, and she began uh, what we uh, call a, a decolonization initiative. And what that is, is looking at the Abbey Museum as a colonial museum, understanding how museums uh, uh, as collecting institutions in the American conservation movement have engaged in processes that actually have been harmful to Native peoples, and how do we undo those processes and create a space that is not just uh, informative to non-Native peoples about Wabanaki peoples through the lens of archaeology and anthropology, but is actually a welcoming space to uh, Wabanaki people and non-Wabanaki people and centers the narrative on the voices of Wabanaki peoples of the past and the living communities of today, with archaeology and anthropology being used to support those narratives, which is a vastly different approach. And so this is something that Cinnamon had began. And uh, the structure of the power of the Abbey Museum began to change with uh, the creation of the Native Council, which is kind of a secondary board of, of trustees. So I have a board of trustees as well as a Native Council. And the Native Council are made up of individuals appointed by the communities. And so the Abbey has no say in who gets put onto that council. And as the board of trustees is also currently about 50% Wabanaki uh, board members. So the structure had changed. And uh, when Cinnamon, when, when it was time for her to move on, and they were looking for a new director, the title changed from president CEO of the museum to executive director and senior partner to Wabanaki Nations, which signifies more of the shift. And so the voice is now changing of the museum from third person perspective to actually more and more first-person perspectives. And, and a great example of that happened last year, and it's going to happen again this year. Uh, you know, when COVID hit, we had to cancel all of our live events, you know. So to have those first-person demonstrators talking about how they, uh, you know, pound an ash log and talking about the, the language and the cultural aspects, you know, and being able to have those events, all of that was gone. And so uh, we converted uh, our live Abbey Museum Indian Market, which was only going to be in its third year, to a digital online uh, live interactive event that was at six hours and we're going to be having it again this year and what that did was it allowed us to bring Wabanaki artists 
to the virtual realm. So the, the one upside of having things virtually is that your potential for a global audience. And so uh, really the Abbey Museum Indian Market exposed the world to the quality of Wabanaki artists and they got to tell their own stories of how they got into their arts, what influenced them, what what elders were part of their life, what other artists uh, inspired them and, and when, how their art gets created so that people don't just see Native art as something that existed only authentically in the past, but can see the authenticity in the artists of today and also see the high quality. And and that was probably an example of, of the biggest shift is that they were speaking from their own voices. And I, as a Wabanaki person, was interviewing them as a first person, uh, Pasquakwadi. And so people got to see a conversation between Native artists and a Native executive director, which is a different conversation than, uh, um, than artists would have with a non-Native executive director. And so... Uh, an amazing shift that is going on currently. Welcome back. I'm speaking today with Chris Newell, director of the Abe Museum, about how a museum can serve to communicate, educate, and reconcile differences through information and experience. Your focus, nonetheless, still revolves around the collections uh, and your core exhibit. Mm-hmm when people are able to come back to the museum is a tool not to be not to be forgotten. Absolutely. However, museums in the past have sort of structured themselves as this kind of cabinet of curiosity. Uh, we share a professional relationship in having been directors of these kinds of museums, history museums with a sort of narrow specific focus. How do you liberate a museum from the, the conventions that many, many of these museums had? It's sort of the tyranny of the object. And how do you release the power of the of the material culture in a way that changes the museum visitors' experience? Yeah, so that, that's really what the the movement to decolonize museums is really essentially about. That how do we uh, build? a different experience for, for people than, than museums have, have traditionally done things in the past. So it's a, uh, an interesting construction, you know, a, a colonial museum attempting to tell first-person perspectives of Wabanaki peoples. And considering the history of museums and, you know, the way they've treated Native cultures, collecting um, not just items and objects, but also uh, funerary objects or, or, you know, gravesite remains, within the collections and siloing them within just the museum itself and not allowing a lot of outside uh, access to those collections. And the issue with that is if you're centering it through the sciences of anthropology and archaeology, uh, those are so dominated by non-Native folks that you're really always getting interpretation. So by opening up access to our collections to Wabanaki communities, so this is something that other museums had figured out already, but the Abbey had, had taken upon itself to, to make sure it would happen. By doing so, we're able to bring the traditional knowledge, uh, the linguistic knowledge, uh, oral histories that exist within the communities and pair them with you know what we call objects or items in our collections and take them way beyond the archaeology and anthropology, uh, what, what those sciences could ever do and, and bring them together. And so by unsiloing, you know, our collections and allowing access more and more to Wabanaki peoples, not only does it connect them with the histories that are being held in our collections and have been hard to access, you know, for such a long time, but it also changes the dynamic between the museum and Wabanaki peoples in that we can work with the communities in their needs. And a great example of that is our upcoming temporary exhibit that we have, which is called Stitching Ourselves Together. And that was born of this partnership work and the unsiloing of the collections uh, that was happening. Now, back then, the Abbey wasn't on the partnership level with the, uh, the Native communities in the state of Maine where we are now. And the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq up in northern Maine were essentially in the community in the state of Maine. The artists had lost uh, most of the ability to create new porcupine quill work. It was not a lost art completely. It's definitely, you know, Mi'kmaq artists uh, in, in Canada uh, carry this on, and, and there are artists in, um, in the other Wabanaki communities that do as well. But for the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq, it was a struggle. And the Abbey Museum has an impressive collection of Mi'kmaq porcupine quill baskets. And so the Aroostook uh, Band of Mi'kmaq had applied for a grant. They were able to bring uh, the collections manager from the Abbey, who brought the entire collection of Mi'kmaq quill uh, work, up to the community. And they spent a few days studying them in depth 
And as a result of that, the art of pool work, uh, porcupine pool work, has been revived within the community over the past several years. And stitching ourselves together is really about that moment, about that you know reintroduction of the Abbey Museum coming into the community, unsiloing our collection, allowing access, unfettered access to you know to this artwork, and uh, a reengagement of the community with its traditional lifeways and traditional arts. And and as a result, we have new pieces being created. And so this the temporary exhibit is going to be talking about the history of full work, but also about uh, the re-engagement uh, that a museum can have by bringing these collections, these items into the community to, to re-engage the knowledge of traditional knowledge of the people, pair them all together and see what gets created out of it. And that's the new pieces that will be coming out of this exhibit are really a great example of that. So is this re-engagement, uh, I understand that part of it, and I think that's an amazing thing, that in fact, you, that you're re-engaging with your community uh, as an institution that heretofore may not have had that connection, but at the same time, you're enlisting that, that community to become part of the telling of the story, which then goes out into the larger public. And that the museum then becomes a kind of megaphone, a sounding space for the telling of these stories. Yeah, that, that's very, very true. One of the things that, uh, you know, especially as, as a Wabanaki person, if somebody gives me a question about, say, uh, you know, Penobscot people, my first inclination is to send them to the Penobscot Nation Museum and, and ask their question there in specifics. Uh, and also the Tribal Historic Preservation Office and, and other things like that. Because Penobscots are very well equipped to speak for themselves in their own history and their own culture. And the Abbey Museum is, is literally a host participating host of it, but we do have a high profile. And as a result, we can be a megaphone for these communities. And so we can normalize it for people because a lot of times because of our high profile, people will tend to ask the Abbey first about a tribal specific question. And, and we can be responsible enough as partners with the communities to say that we understand our position as a colonial museum that is hosting these and that the communities have the ability to tell their stories themselves. And so not only do we uh, sound off about what we have for content within the museum, which was all tribally sourced and told in first person perspective, we are also a, a great way of teaching the non-native world of how to source your information properly when looking for specific tribal questions about a specific tribe. Chris, many years ago, I produced a diagram that presented an artifact as metaphor around which circulated the museum's goals and aspirations. Our listeners can't see the schematic, and that's probably just as well, but it proposes to use artifacts as the neck between two parts of an hourglass, the site, building, collection, exhibits, and program, as cause and access translated by the interventions of historians and artists to social history, educational themes, exemplar profiles, and personal experience. Such responses, however generated, can be aggregated into a larger understanding and outcome. Uh, this is lofty stuff, I suppose, but how would you describe it better? How do we take a thing and release the magic that's inside it? That, that's such a great question, right? You know, because sometimes the simplest things within your collection have the best stories. And that's one of the things that I oftentimes encourage my other uh, museum colleagues to participate in is that when you have an item in your collection is that the story remains with it. How did it become part of your collection? All of those types of things to go beyond just the schematic of collecting and then uh, using historians and, and life experiences to find an interpretation and then spreading it outward. Um, th there's really additional components that you can add to it by uh, looking at uh, the overall picture of how the collecting institution actually operates. So there's other parts of the story that actually start coming out of it when you when you look at that. And so for instance, a lot of times if you look at, uh, if you go to a, a colonial museum, if you see a gallery with native art in it, and the art comes from say the late 19th century, almost always uh, you'll never see the name of the artist located next to it, which is not typical. European art always has the artist, always has the, the story of how the painting became part of the collection is part of, of the knowledge of the museum. Yet, when it comes to uh, native arts throughout the country, they've always been seen as kind of an exotic. 
And so the, the, the humanity has been removed of it in the display. So there's something to, to, you know, to talk about there. Why were these pieces being collected in such a way that they would not keep the story in the name of the artist along with the, uh, the piece that was being collected? And so this is a, a shift that we at the Abbey Museum definitely take on fully as we make sure that when we, especially when we introduce new pieces of art, that the artist and their bio and their story is included uh, just as art is, is typically, because the, the story of the artist is just as important as the art itself. And by humanizing it, we uh, kind of get rid of the implicit bias that has been fed by colonial museums that Native people's art are only authentic in the past or pre-19th century. And uh, it lets us uh, understand Native cultures as dynamic, that we have always uh, shaped ourselves to the container that we've fit in. And the United States is here now, and our arts reflect the world as we see it. And so, therefore, will look different than they did prior to the creation of the United States government, the creation of the state of Maine, and all of these types of things. And so, they are just as authentic, however, because uh, those artists from four to five hundred years ago and beyond were creating art pieces to reflect the world that they saw at that time. So, the value of adding in the human component to Native arts is, is something that has been sadly missing in a lot of aspects in the museum world. And when we reintroduce it, it takes it beyond that interpretive model, uh, you know, going through the hourglass, uh, the bottom of the glass, I think, by incorporating those other pieces actually, you know, would be a lot wider because a lot more people can find connection to it by reintroducing humanity, you know, uh, and, and looking at the way the collecting institutions have, have not been doing that for such a long time and, uh, and exploring that a little bit deeper. When you were at the Mashantucket Museum, you and your colleagues founded uh, uh, an educational initiative in response to your observations that in the public schools, uh, Native history was absent from, from social studies. Would you talk about that a little bit? Did that too get integrated or was that too siloized even when you were successful? And then I guess my follow-up question to that would be is, how do you intend to try to do that here again in Maine? And if so, how? Well, I mean, I haven't necessarily done it yet, right? Uh, what I tell people about this work is that it's multi-generational. It took multiple generations to erase Native people out of out of the history books. Um, it's going to take multiple generations for us to get the ship on, on some sort of corrected course. So there, there's a, a lot of work to be done. Uh, and I'm a second generation educator, you know, so I've, I've seen my father do this work for 50 years. Uh, and I've kind of taken out the torch for him uh, in a lot of ways and, and continuing, but within my own uh, personal life experience. So Agama Educational Initiative, yes, it was born, three, three of us working at the Pequot Museum, we're, we're doing a lot of partnership work with, you know, partnering the Pequot Museum as a tribal museum, the world's largest uh, tribally owned uh, tribal museum in the world, tremendously awesome resource for learning about Pequot history and just about history of Native peoples in Connecticut. And when I got to Connecticut, uh, my wife is Mashantucket, so I was, I've been involved with the community and Mystic River was based out of Mashantucket for a long time. So I've been involved with that community for over 20 years. And when I got to Connecticut, it's a big difference between Connecticut and Maine. You know, Connecticut is an older English colony. It was, a, it was actually uh, several uh, smaller colonies and became all the Connecticut colony and eventually uh, the state of Connecticut. And the uh, erasure of Native peoples from history is, is pretty much a complete thing. The, the first war of aggression by Europeans happened in what is now the state of Connecticut, the Pequot War. And that happened in the 17th century and included the Pequot Massacre, uh, which happened in 1636. Uh, and, and really, you know, signified a change in, in tactics for the English, you know, going from um, uh, defending forts and things like that to an all-out uh, scorched earth uh, method of, of war, you know, where they, they burned an entire village full of men, women, and children down to the ground, killing approximately 600 of them in one act. And this this was a significant change, you know, and it was actually the first time that Native peoples took on a European power in the Americas and they would end up losing, you know, the, the war as a result. And that history was just not being taught. And uh, it was the, the typical uh, touch points for talking about Native history in the public school system. This is something I ran into at Calitz High School as well, that this was in existence. Not quite as much Maine as well was even back then a lot better, at least in, in Washington County because of the presence of Passamaquoddy people at including at least uh, the Passamaquoddy history in the local area, but Connecticut did not do that. The, uh, the, the school system 
runs into native topics only with uh, explore European exploration, which is you know a largely mythologized the story of Columbus. You know, we only certain parts have been told for so long, and we don't have been telling all of the story of, of uh, his arrival. And he never arrived in the Northeast or even on the continent itself. So there's there's that portion of it, and then uh, the Thanksgiving narrative, uh, the first Thanksgiving narrative, I should say, which once again is it's a historical event that happened, but the calling it the first Thanksgiving and creating the narrative of friendly interaction, you know, and, and uh, peace between colonists and, and natives is, is just kind of a glossing over of how colonization and, and uh, the arrival of Europeans actually happened. Uh, so that's largely mythologized as well. And then we don't see native content introduced again until we talk about 19th century American westward expansion. So here in the Northeast, even in Connecticut and Maine, we're not teaching the history of what happened through the years of colonization, through the formation of the American government, how Pasquapati people helped in the American Revolution to preserve the coast of what is the state of Maine and also preserve what became the border between the United States and Canada. That, I was born and raised with that knowledge, but it was not taught. And and that, that erasure was such so bothersome to me in a lot of ways. And, and it was affecting you know the, the Pequot peoples as well. John Mason, who led the Pequot Massacre, is uh, his facade uh, as a statue is uh, over the, the, the entrance to the Connecticut State House. So uh, the Pequot community did not diminish after the war. In fact, uh, the, the oldest continuously occupied reservation is the Mashantucket Pequot Reservation, founded in 1666. So they have existed there through all of this. Yet, the uh, glorification of somebody that has such a dark history of a massacre of their people was added to the state house building. So you can just imagine when they got federal recognition and started uh, their uh, relationship with the state government, what it must feel like for Pequot leaders to have to walk into that building and to see that glorification of uh, that such such a dark history. So Agamemnon was really about um, looking at how can we reincorporate uh, teaching of these histories because the teaching of hard histories, especially about Native peoples is not about uh, a weapon of guilt against another party. It's about learning all the good, the bad, and the ugly of history of all of us as human beings so that we can, as people, as people as a whole, learn from it and do better going forward. I mean, we should be uh, invoking in third graders the idea very early on that genocide is a bad thing. And that should be, it's, it's not a bad thing to teach that. They are not responsible for the genocide that, uh, that began back in the 17th century. And children, I've taught third graders this history, and they can uh, they understand that implicitly. We've got to give them enough credit to, to know that they will not internalize that as their own fault. But what they will do is they'll be able to combine it with all the other history that they learned, and they'll be able to discern for themselves that these actions by human beings in the past were not conducive to a good future. And we need to learn from these lessons if we're gonna do better as human beings going forward, especially in considering that we're all existing in the same spaces together these days. Well, are you finding welcome in the school systems? I mean, the amazing thing, and it's true with marine environmental issues as well, when you get people in elementary, secondary school level, one presumes that you have an opportunity to reach them and teach them in a way that in advance of the concretization of their biases, uh, yes, there will be biases in the home. Yes, there will be biases in behavior. Yes, there will be biases implicit in the communications and the television and the whole worldview. But the fact is, if we're going to change everyone's perspective, it seems to me that's the place to start. And a history museum can be an educational adjunct that is beyond sort of neoclassical kindergarten programs in the in the education department where you become an actual outreach powerful participant and force in the educational process Absolutely. Uh, I mean, museums are such trusted places. You know, when we go to a museum, I mean, we we we, uh, we trust the information that we see. So, however way it is presented, we trust that it has been fully vetted, and this is the proper way it should be presented. And that's always been the case. And so, as a museum director, you know, I realize the responsibility we have at the Abbey to actually get it right, uh, because the visitor experience is going to absorb our, the knowledge that we're presenting and they're going to trust 
that it, it is correct. And so if we're only teaching through the perspective of archaeology and anthropology, which are non-native sciences, and not including the, the linguistics and the narratives and oral histories of, of native peoples, then we're really sh uh, have, we have a shortcoming, a tremendous shortcoming in what we're presenting. It's not objective enough for people to get a, a wide angle view of these histories. And so as a result, they do end up uh, forming implicit biases. It's not their fault that they're doing that. And the institutions definitely don't do that intently uh, or purposefully. But because of the way we as uh, human beings trust these institutions, the institutions really have to take it upon themselves to be responsible with the information that they present and to, to find all avenues of, of knowledge, to bring them all together into these spaces. And sometimes they are not complementary to one another. And that is okay within your museum space to have arguing viewpoints sometimes because history is not so clean, you know, and people view it from different perspectives. And I think that's probably the most valuable thing that we can do is introduce the idea that there is more than just the museum perspective on these histories or the archaeologists and the anthropologists. There are multiple different perspectives and it's at times they argue with one another and they are at odds with one another. And these are the things uh, that actually make up our humanity because we are not robots and none of us are the Borg and we do not all think together and, and agree with each other at all times. And that's never been the case. And so to, to muddy it up, the narratives within within our um, uh, museum spaces with perspectives from, from different sides actually provides people uh, a much wider angle lens for them to, to view uh, the information uh, and, and really expand their own thinking. Uh, because we've been teaching history this way for such a long time that you, you asked about how, how is the reception with teachers. Many of them, oftentimes, as we're teaching this information to them with Egemont Educational Initiative, this is the first time they're hearing about it themselves because they were not taught it in their school experience. So they actually are very accepting because it adds to their body of knowledge that they have gained through their lifetime. And it creates better avenues for them to teach material and, and provide these, these alternating viewpoints so that people don't get stuck in just, you know, that there's just one way to learn things. Welcome back. I'm speaking today with Chris Newell, director of the Abe Museum, about how a museum can serve to communicate, educate, and reconcile differences through information and experience. Well, when you declare yourself an educational institution, not just a place where people come for a field trip, where you have a, a small educational staff that interprets what's going on in, in any particular exhibit, but when you actually say, we're going to become an ed education institution, and that's actually as important as our treasure house role, that changes a lot of people's expectations. And even within the institution itself. The board of directors become participants. They too become storytellers, not just managers or supervisors. The whole staff becomes part of an educational outreach that takes you into unexpected places. And that's what I've always found, that if, if you're going to tell a story, you really, I guess you can sit around and wait for people to pick your book up and read it or come to the place where you're telling the story. But that doesn't seem to me like a, the most effective way to communicate. The most effective way to communicate is to go out into the world, find yourself an audience and in unconventional places, and then tell the story and let the authenticity of it be the power of change. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Agama Educational Initiative was really born of that idea because we, we don't have a physical location that we operate out of. We operate primarily all on outreach, working with historical societies, working with K-12 schools, colleges, universities, as well as museums, because that is our our niche, you know, for the most part. But any place of education, that, that's that's where we operate, is we, we get ourselves into these spaces and try to complicate the conversation sometimes when it comes to history and social studies. And, and it's beneficial. As somebody that's taught a college class, uh, an intro to Native American studies uh, in Connecticut and, and seen the effect 
effective erasure on the non-Native students. I can tell you that when they are taught these histories at that stage, and if they've just not been exposed to it before, what ends up happening to them is when you, you talk about the first Thanksgiving narrative and you give all the sides of colonization that occurred, the, the, the great dying that, that happened in Patuxent just before the arrival of the Mayflower that allowed the Mayflower to settle in, in, the, in the place that they did, which they ended up calling Plymouth, is because a, a disease had wiped out the village the year before. And so when you when you talk about these things and tell students at that level, at college level, this is the first time they hear it, what ends up happening is they have an existential crisis. They literally look back at their, their childhood formative years in the educational system and they wonder, what else have I not been taught? What else was hidden from me? And they actually get upset that this was withheld from them. And, this, and like I said, this has not been uh, necessarily intentional on the part of the teachers. This is the curriculum that the school boards and everything approved for them. This is the way it's been done for generations. And that's what they were raised with as well. So they're, they're continuing something that they felt was beneficial. However, their students, when they get to a certain level and, and uh, diversify their knowledge outward beyond the classroom narrative that they were taught, they end up just upset. They're angry about uh, not learning all of this because it was, it, you know, when they do learn, uh, they, they, they learn so much about humanity just in general. And that's the thing that I, I would hope we as educators and especially as educational institutions can start to unravel and undo for not just the Native students, but for the non-Native students as well, is make sure that we're enlightening them about all pieces of history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that they come to it with a, a proper um, framework. As you were talking, Chris, the obvious point, I guess, is that there are two mains, a division subtle and overt uh, between Native peoples and others from people who are here now and from away as colonists or representatives of different traditions uh, that have collided and sometimes oppressed. Can a museum as a storytelling place be also a place of reconciliation? I think it could be, yes, um, but it requires a museum to really look at itself, uh, you know, especially colonial museums, because as I said, for generations, since the birth of the American conservation movement, the way museums have interacted with Native cultures as exotics, collecting human remains, uh, doing things that just, you know, would not be acceptable with, with other cultures. I mean, I, I can just imagine uh, going to a non-Native friend and uh, finding out about where their great-great-great-grandfather was buried and asking them if it would be okay for me to dig up the grave to see what their grandfather was wearing back at that time. It's, it's, so, you know, it, when we look at it from that perspective and, and understand the, the history of uh, the way museums have operated with Native communities, there, there's, there's, there's actually a very dark side to it. And uh, for reconciliation to happen, museums have to really admit that and uh, come to terms with their, with their own history. The Abbey Museum is not removed from harmful practices in its past especially in regards to Wabanaki peoples and the, the movement to decolonize and indigenize the spaces and, and knowledge uh, with the Abbey Museum is really about that reconciliation process. But it does not just happen with a snap of the fingers or with the decision. This is something that the Abbey has to commit to for the remainder of the Abbey Museum's existence on this planet. <laughs> uh, let's change the subject for a minute, although we'll get right back there, I'm sure. Uh, you're a member of the Mystic River Singers, an intertribal drum group that participates in powwows around New England and beyond. Can you talk about your engagement with such a group, what it is and, and what it means? Isn't rhythm and song another very effective way to tell these stories, to sustain language and cultural traditions and invite participation? Yeah, absolutely. So my my journey into music began as a child. I didn't begin as a singer. I didn't, never as a child saw myself as a singer, but I grew up around uh, my father, uh, Wayne Newell, Blanche Soccer Basin, was the cook in our school, you know, and, and taught us as children traditional music. And Blanche, my dad, just have such an energy about it. And through them, I was able to learn through the Wabanaki worldview or Passamaquoddy worldview, I should say, that music or, or the ability to sing is actually within our culture considered in a way a magical power. 
power. And I, I oftentimes explain that to students. It's not like Harry Potter magic where you're waving a wand. Uh, it's something we already all understand. Music is, is kind of a universal language. So if a song that you're listening to is the, the song that makes you get up and dance and every time you hear it, that's that magic being transferred to you through, through music. If it brings a tear to your eye, if it affects your emotions that way, that is the way that a singer has magical power over a human being. So, and music also has another power in that it is the strongest tool for memory. In fact, another example I often bring up is that as children in, in America learning the English language, the way we learn alphabetical order is through the alphabet song. The, the same type of uh, framework existed within Wabanaki peoples as well. We, we uh, were able to create songs uh, that could be improvised that would recall journeys of as, as long as a thousand miles and would have inclusion of where mountains are, where rivers are, where porges are, where villages are. And so we were able to map the entire uh, area of the Northeast here through song. This is something that the French would end up discouraging back in the 17th century. And so uh, the, the songs were lost largely the oral history and the stories remained. But stories do change, whereas songs tend to stay the same uh, as a mode of memory. So music really is a tremendously powerful tool for telling our history, and it always has been for, for Wabanaki peoples, uh, you know, not just telling our histories, uh, telling our values and, and, and all of those types of things, but also just as a, uh, as a way of holding on to memories of how to get from one place to the other. It had a practical purpose as well. It was also a way of getting together and enjoying your time together you know, no televisions, no radios, no electricity, right? So music, a well-versed singer that had a good library of music was a much sought-after individual uh, because of not only their ability to, to teach through this uh, music, but also to entertain. So there's so many values uh, that go along with it. And when uh, I joined the Mystic River Singers, I actually left Dartmouth College back at that time. And it's just, yeah, I was having issues as somebody moving in from uh, an isolated Passamaquoddy music and trying to immerse myself in the Ivy League culture. I was struggling, not with the, uh, the classes, but with uh, the social structure of Dartmouth College and also the presence of the, the Indian mascot still on the campus was affecting my self-esteem. So I did leave Dartmouth and join the Mystic River Singers and I spent 20 years uh, with Mystic River on the road and we were quite successful. We were in the early 2000s, late 90s, we were one of the most successful and popular drum groups in the country and so we were invited all over the U.S. and Canada. And what that did for me is it allowed me to spend time in Native communities that I was unfamiliar with. But not all Native people are alike, you know, as a a basic thing, but a lot of American folks don't understand that because of the way the sports mascot culture portrays us as all one culture. You know, so I got to spend time in Lakota, Ojibwe, uh, Apache, Navajo communities, you name it, all across the U.S. and Canada. And when I was there, I would sit and listen a lot. I would learn. By sitting and being quiet and sitting still, it's amazing what can happen. And so I would pay attention to how elders at these events would teach outsiders like myself, you know, a native from another community, an outsider to their community, about their own culture and history of that community. And I would start to in, in incorporate that into my own pedagogy of how to teach outwardly about native peoples and about Wabanaki peoples to a non-Wabanaki world. And I also started to incorporate music because it's such a powerful tool, especially with children. You, there are songs that we, you know, we use as children in the schools at home for us to learn our language. And so I can introduce uh, some of those children's tunes to very, very young children. And by teaching it to them, they are not appropriating it. They're learning about Wabanaki culture through a cultural norm of our own, a cultural a teaching tool that we use of our own, which is music, and doing it in the way uh, that we do it. So what ends up coming about it is that oftentimes people remember the music part the most. And so I really put a lot of effort into making sure that I am uh, singing uh, correctly. I got the beat, the rhythm. Uh, and, and as you go from, you know, I know if I'm singing music from different cultures, I'm making sure to teach people where these musics comes from uh, and that it's not Native American music. This is an Ojibwe song. And this, you know, there's, here's the story behind it. This is a, a Dakota song. And this is how the song was made. This is how the, 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 the rhythm pattern is constructed, depending on how old the audience is and how much they're into music. I can kind of transform the material to their level and uh, through music it, it truly is something that that's what sticks with people the most uh, you know dance is another thing but uh, it's really the, uh, that's one of my the most powerful tools that I've been able to incorporate in uh, educational presentations that I have including my TEDx talk which was kind of like my first servo into public speaking was really built around Passamaquoddy songs uh, and the stories behind them.
Can you make some recommendations? Can you tell us something that you think we should read or listen to? Absolutely. So uh, shameless plug here, but my dad just put out a new book. It's called which is uh, translated as uh, the stories our grandmothers told us. And what this book is, it's a bilingual book, and it's a collection of stories that uh, were put together in, in a smaller set of books in the 1970s. And uh, my father and uh, Dr. Robert Levitt, you know, have been working together for 50 years uh, on preserving our language, the creation of the dictionary and other things. And what they did was they took a lot of these older works and they, uh, many of them were written only in Passamaquoddy. They were tools for us as children to learn the Passamaquoddy language, learn how to read and write it through books. And they uh, very, you know, laboriously translated line by line all of these stories to English. So the English translation might not flow necessarily as an easy narrative because our language transferring to English doesn't necessarily transfer that way, but it, it becomes a tool for learning the language. You can read the Passamaquoddy and look at the English translation and know that you have an accurate translation and not just keeping with a narrative or, or fitting into an, a style of writing in the English language. So it, it's a tremendously um, powerful tool for even a non-Passamaquoddy speaker. If they studied this book enough, they would end up, you know, uh, over time, getting a grasp and a basic knowledge of how to speak Passamaquoddy and Passamaquoddy worldview. And so that's the value of native produced works and also the inclusion of uh, our language as part of it is that we can transfer that worldview. And that's really where I always tell people that for, for state of Mainers to really learn about Wabanaki peoples, they need to really learn some of our language. Because if we only learn about Wabanaki peoples through the English language, we're only learning it through the framework of how the English viewed us and uh, to really understand Wabanaki peoples is really you need an understanding of our language and so uh, a basic understanding at least and so this is a, a tremendous tool for bridging that gap uh, learning histories, literal uh, traditional stories. A it's made up of a, a repertoire of, of stories that a traditional Passamaquoddy storyteller would have. In my father's youth, that's what he grew up with. They didn't have televisions and radio and all of that. Storytellers was how they went to a, a good storyteller's home and they would have a collection of stories, not just glue scap stories, which is our, the, the being that created our Wabanaki peoples, but also entertaining stories about insects and other things interacting with each other. And even the modern Modern day stories include interactions with things, with uh, people like, like the state of Maine game wardens. So we learn from those interactions as well. So this is a, a tremendous opportunity for people to look at what a repertoire of uh, Passamaquoddy stories would look like and also to engage with the language and even have the opportunity to learn some of it along the way. And music? And music. Yes, absolutely. So the Passamaquoddy Tribal Historic Preservation Office has uh, created uh, several recordings of Passamaquoddy traditional music, the Penobscot Nation as well. And then along with that, uh, the very first recording of uh, Native music's any time uh, in history was done in the 1890s by Jesse Walter Fuchs in Callis, Maine, recording Passamaquoddy music. And so they were recorded on Thomas Edison's new invention, uh, the wax cylinder uh, recording uh, device. And those wax cylinder recordings have been uh, repatriated back to the Passamaquoddy communities as uh, electronic copies. And we are actively using those and studying them. So if you go to PassamaquoddyPeople.com, we have put a selection of that collection online and you can listen to Passamaquoddy Passamaquoddy music and the voices of Passamaquoddy singers back in the 1890s. Or you can read the translation and also the use of what we call TK labels, which is something that we're incorporating in the museum world when talking about native cultures, TK, traditional knowledge. So rather than categorizing collections in, in the uh, PassamaquoddyPeople.com page with English language categorization, you know, as it traditionally has been done, we are categorizing with our own language and uh, categorizing under our own worldview. So if you go to to that site, you can not only hear modern uh, versions of Passamaquoddy music, but you can also hear um, some of the very old uh, songs that you know existed for uh, thousands of years prior to the arrival of colonists. So it's, a, it's amazing uh, resource that, that that's available these days. Let's circle back to spirit of place. What would be your last observations about how this understanding through an institution, through these various tools for communication? evoke the essential essence of the place where we live. 
Yeah, I, the place where we live is, is it's more than just calling it the state of Maine. You know, it's really the, the land itself has its own story that is older than the state of Maine. And we are all dwellers now on this landscape here. And so in sense of place, I oftentimes encourage people to go beyond that 200-year-old understanding of the state of Maine and to really look at how our, our landscape was developed and, uh, and, and also understand the changes that have happened. Because of uh, uh, the creation of the state of Maine and the way that English culture liked to commodify uh, natural resources for profit and own land, when all of that started to take over, the old growth forest for the state of Maine was cut down and less than 5% of it remains now. And so when we look at our forests, we've got to understand that those are all skinny, very young trees. And that's not how it looked years ago, uh, centuries ago. And the dams that are in the rivers and the roads that are there were not there either. And so if we can get our beyond the layering of uh, the modern conveniences that, that we've added to the landscape and really start to understand the land itself, then we can really understand our sense of place in it, you know, because as dwellers of this place, the uh, non-Wabanaki folks that dwell here as well are also dwellers of the land of the dawn in this time. And so therefore have a responsibility to maintain this landscape as well for their future generations, and which includes all of us now. We're, we're all here together. We're all neighbors. And it's really about how do we steward this land for future generations for all of us together as human beings. I've been talking with Chris Newell who's a reader, a writer, a drummer, a singer, a collector, a curator, an educator, and a storyteller about the spirit of Maine. Chris, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Peter. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. You've been listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU Community Radio. 89.9 Blue Hill. Join us for a new conversation the first Friday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. Peter's guest next month will be Rob McCall, nature writer and author of the Awandajo Almanac. They will discuss the history and craft of observing and writing about natural things. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is Elite Island Books audio project produced by Tricia Badger with theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Find archived public affairs shows at weru.org, visit pointedfurs.org for more information and show notes, and find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.